Hi, I'm Tristan Miller, and you're listening to Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality between mental health and the arts. Today on the program, I have author and therapist Edie Nathan to discuss grief, trauma, and life choices. Here she is talking about terminology regarding trauma. We need a broader language, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, I, you can self-identify as someone who's had an experience that has changed their lives forever, mm-hmm. going from that ordinary life through a supreme ordeal, going into the depths of that cave and having to face demons that you never thought you'd have to face, and then coming out and realizing that you've got unexpected allies. You've come out and you've met people as a result of that really hard journey that you never would have thought you would have met. And that they are caretakers and they are witnesses and they are so many, um, so much more than what, what you would have ever expected to have. So yes, maybe there's survivorship and, I, and we use survivor, but you are so much more than that survivor. This podcast is brought to you in part by Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller to support us there. You'll receive bonus content and early access to these and a few other episodes as well. Also, you can advertise your local business like Cameron Clark is doing for Company of Fools, which are currently in rehearsals for Fool of Love. Look for the run of that show on their website, companyoffools.com. Also, I'm beginning to tour my one-man show about my experience with bipolar disorder. If you are interested in seeing it in your hometown, shoot me an email at tristanmillercomedy at gmail.com, and I'll see if I can find a venue near you. I'd like to thank Billy Conahan for use of the track To Be or Nah off the album Leaping with Intent to Fly, available on Bandcamp and iTunes. All right, let's get to this interview. So, are you from the city? I know you went to school here. I went to school here now, but I'm actually from Chicago originally. Oh, really? I'm from yeah. Minnesota, so right. it's at least kind of nearby. Um, what made you leave Chicago for here? You know, Chicago's a great city, mm-hmm. but um, sometimes when someone has, like, yearnings, mm-hmm. like I, was, I loved theater, yeah. and I came to New York to go to NYU and act, and that mm-hmm. was my dream. Yeah? Yeah. 
how did that how was like was I didn't mean like how did that go like but like how um did you go to Tish and like how was that process? So I was very much involved with Tish's film school though I was actually not in Tish and the way that NYU worked is like you had Tish and then you had theater programs so mm-hmm. I was in the experimental theater room. Oh right on. Yeah. And ETW was just an amazing place. Like, they just expanded the way that you thought outside of the box. Yeah. And that's what I loved. Good, good, good. Um, how was it going in as, like, a young person coming into the city from Chicago, which is a big city in and of itself? It is. You know, it's so interesting because in some ways Chicago felt bigger than New York. Cause, really? Yeah, New York. And Chicago does, too. They, there's, like, these little neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. But NYU felt like a holder, like a container. Mm-hmm. And uh, Washington Square Park was part of that container. Yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah. And once you got out of school and you got out of that container, was there any like underlying stress? Did you? How well did you adapt? I always felt at home and mm-hmm. I, I, in New York. And I tell the story when I got to New York and I was washing to, walk, walking through uh, Central Park and there was a guy talking to a bush and mm-hmm. I had absolutely no inclination to talk to that bush. I knew I was in the right place. <laughs> absolutely. You know, because it's like, oh, I'm not going to be that much of an outlier. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to fit in. <laughs> this is so cool. Yeah. I love this. Yeah, it's always nice being like the less least eccentric person on totally, the block. Yeah. You know. Whereas in Chicago, somehow the, uh, the you know the eccentricities were just um, a little more glaring, mm-hmm. at least for me. Yeah, that makes sense. The Midwesterns tend to be a little bit more buttoned up. Yeah. Um, yeah. What got you into theater? Theater is a way to escape the self. Yes. And being able to embody different characters and not have to be myself mm-hmm. was a relief. Yeah. <laughs> It was such a relief to be able to embody these intense Shakespearean characters, mm-hmm. and Shakespeare was my love. Mm-hmm. And so to just be able to say, oh, gosh, I can I can be somebody, not me, and feel powerful, when really inside I didn't feel so powerful. Mm-hmm. I felt um, sad and alone and scared. And so be, theater was... an. Um, it was a relief. Mm-hmm. It was an escape that felt grounding. Mm-hmm. And would you chalk those like feelings you were just describing up to like normal adolescence, or would you say that they are something further? Do you still deal with that like anxiety? So I don't deal with that anxiety yeah. now. And uh-huh. That's a really good question because I wonder if once you've been touched by mm-hmm. something so deep. Mm-hmm. If you ever forget it, yeah, it's a it's a reminder, mm-hmm. and maybe it's also part of the way that creativity gets fed, at least for me, and maybe for artists and musicians and mm-hmm. creative types, is that there's some darkness, there's some part of the soul that's been touched by anxiety or depression or a deep malaise. Mm -hmm. that frames you and frames the way you see the world. Mm -hmm. And you stopped acting, and now you're a therapist. And what, why did that switch happen? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's where we go. That's where we go into what I call the 
the beginning of the hero's journey. Sure. Okay, so Joseph Campbell um, coined the hero's journey, but that hero's journey is ancient, and we've known about this hero's journey and lived it in so many ways. And the hero's journey, and it's like in three pieces, like three acts. Yeah. So you've got the ordinary life, and then you've got this supreme ordeal that changes you forever. Mm-hmm. And then you go back to an ordinary life, and you're the same and not the same at all. Mm-hmm. So that moment when I stopped acting was leaving my ordinary life and facing a supreme ordeal. Mm-hmm. I became... Um, extremely anxious, phobic, Mm -hmm. to the point of being agoraphobic. Now, agoraphobia, Mm -hmm. do you know, do you have you? Yeah, fear of like leaving the home and so forth. Totally. So there I was, I was 24 and it hits men and women sometime between the ages of 18 and 27, Mm -hmm. 28. It's just like this primary point in one's life Mm -hmm. that it's your change agent time. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there I was. I was going on auditions and things were happening and I was doing some off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, this is great. And then I had a family issue, mm-hmm. and um, which I'm not going to bore you with, but <laughs> no it was a trigger. Yeah. And it was within seconds mm-hmm. I went from this life I knew, this ordinary life, Facing my supreme ordeal, mm-hmm. which was I couldn't leave my house. Mm-hmm. I couldn't barely walk outside to get food. And when I would walk down, I was I was living on Flatbush Avenue, okay, mm-hmm. in a time when Flatbush Avenue was not a great place. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was really not good. Yeah, I yeah. mean, no white Jewish girl should be living on Flatbush <laughs> Avenue at that time at all. Not even a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I was living in this in this building mm-hmm. on the second floor w- w- with a kitchen that had black and white tile mm-hmm. and and um, this big mama of a black woman. Mm-hmm. She was caring, and she was the the caretaker of this property. Yeah, toothless and could not have been more caring. Mm-hmm. And she literally cared for me. Yeah, while I couldn't even walk outside my front door that's beautiful yeah 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 how did you push through that i have chills uh-huh. because it um it takes an army mm-hmm. of being able to number one reach out and say i need help yeah. right i didn't have family here and i didn't really think my family was going to be able to help me sure so um I I had this guy who I started to date mm-hmm. and like literally three weeks before this had happened and this guy was also a lifesaver and he didn't know didn't know me I didn't know him but he helped me mm-hmm. and he carried me through this mm-hmm. and he got me into therapy and he got me walking down a street and the thing about anxiety when it's that bad is that you you don't understand it you can't put words to it and you feel like your life is over, yet anything that people 
share with you about take medication well someone who's anxious wants to be in control yeah the last thing they want to do is take medication yeah and the last thing they want to do is put something in their body that they don't know what exactly is going to happen sure, sure. what are you going to do oh my god how is it going to affect me mm-hmm. so um so I, I wanted to do it without anything and years it years went by of a lost life i i mean i could did get out but it was mm-hmm. still felt like a lost life when i finally succumbed and said okay i'll take something i'll take something and in hindsight i wish i had taken something yeah years before i yeah does I, that make sense yeah yeah it absolutely makes sense i feel the same way about like being on medication i've only been on medication for about like i guess a year now but it was one of those things i'm like well i tried everything else now let's do this but like and then the minute I got on and I was like, oh, I could have been this focused my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's always a shame. And there's a lot of stigma surrounding that. Yeah, there is. Yeah. There is. And then there isn't. Yeah. How much do we create stigma mm-hmm. because of our own fear or shame? And I and I asked that question because I, I remember like, so I started to take Xanax and Xanax became my dream drug. Sure. I mean, I didn't abuse it. I was very sensitive to, to the medication. Mm-hmm. But it was like 0.25, but it was enough to take the edge off. Yeah. So I'll never forget, years later, I was like at an art show. I'm also a potter, and I was doing... And pottery actually is what saved my life in terms of the anxiety. And I was at this pottery show, and I don't know, I said, Xanax is like the greatest thing since... I don't know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and somebody's walking by, turns around and says, yeah, I agree with you, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so when we don't shame ourselves around something, mm-hmm. then actually a bigger conversation can happen in ways yeah. that we don't expect. So how do we bring shame to the table when really shame is not in the room unless we bring it there? Yeah. And if we own ourselves mm-hmm. and we actually... Um, we can grieve and we can mourn mm-hmm. what we didn't have, but we can also say, I survived and mm-hmm. I know what it is to be in the supreme ordeal and find a new ordinary life. So to go back, yeah, the new ordinary life started me going down uh, President Street in Park Slope to a pottery studio where this pottery maven gave me the keys to her pottery studio and i began my trek back to a new ordinary life through pottery Mm -hmm. and you know once a creative always a creative so if you can't do theater what else are you going to do yeah absolutely so pottery became my thing and one of the things that she had me focus on which was so amazing was to throw a piece of pottery, and throwing is immediate. There's nothing mm-hmm. more immediate. You sit at a wheel, and in order to throw clay, mm-hmm. you have to be centered because the clay won't center, and it's a telltale sign. You're not centered. Clay's not going to be centered, yeah. not even a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. But when you're centered, that yeah. clay gets centered. And what she said was, don't save any of your pieces. Cut them in half mm-hmm. and look at the interior walls. See what they look like and it became a metaphor for life how am i going to cut myself and look inside mm-hmm. and that became the journey mm-hmm. of cutting cut, cutting through the the self and mm-hmm. looking at what the journey was and did i give up theater yeah because i couldn't go on auditions yeah. and my voice was no longer there mm-hmm. i went back to school 
and got a couple of degrees mm-hmm. and became a therapist. Wow, that's that's really wonderful. That's very beautiful. So you you find it very cathartic to do pottery then. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Definitely. Um, and you have a book out or coming out? I have a book out. Wonderful. Yeah, it's it's called It's Grief, mm-hmm. The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss. Okay. And how did that come about? Well, the accumulation of losses. Mm-hmm. Like We don't necessarily think of grief as anything outside of I've lost a loved one wheelhouse. Whereas this book really looks at all the different types of grief we face. Mm-hmm. So whether it's, yes, loss of a spouse, loss of a child, mm-hmm. but loss of a limb, yeah, loss of our souls. Mm-hmm. And that soul loss is really intense. And that's what happens when we lose a loved one. We also lose a part of ourselves. Yeah. And when we lose a limb, we lose a part of ourselves. Yeah. My phobias, they were a loss of myself. Mm-hmm. I'm also a sexual abuse survivor. Mm-hmm. You have a loss of the self. Yeah. But how are these also teachers? Mm-hmm. And that they give back in ways that we could hardly imagine. And maybe they help us find our voice in ways that we never had a voice. And so this book, It's Grief, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that's not anxiety. It's grief. Mm-hmm. No, that's actually not depression. It's grief. Mm-hmm. And underneath the umbrella of grief, there is anxiety. There's depression. And I, in the book, there's a conversation about the phases of grief, not not stages, because there are no stages. Mm-hmm. But they move in and out of one another yeah. in very graceful ways. Mm-hmm. Was it difficult putting together the book having faced some adversity and like was that triggering for you you know that question you asked about shame yeah yeah, i started to talk about shame how much was i going to reveal yeah that's difficult yeah the big reveal how Mm -hmm. much do we share Mm -hmm. and anxiety was one of my greatest teachers along the lines of grief Mm -hmm. how much do we share and we share when we share, it reduces the anxiety. Yeah. When we share, it maybe gives people permission to feel what they're feeling. So yeah. it was hard. I went through a lot of conversations with a lot of different people. How mm-hmm. much do I share? And because it had been so secreted away within my own soul, I when I decided in the book to share about my different levels of facing grief, Mm -hmm. I realized I needed to talk to my family and share with them the secrets that had been held within me. Mm -hmm. And that was the hard... I have chills right Mm -hmm. now because that was really what was... It was hard. I would imagine. To go to my brother, to go to my nieces and nephew, to go to my stepchildren and say, listen, this book is coming out and I need you to know that these were my life experiences and... These were some of the reasons I needed to leave Chicago. Mm-hmm. And these are the reasons why I became obese. Mm-hmm. And these are the reasons why I fled. Mm-hmm. And you didn't know. And I needed you to know. Because when this book comes out, it's out there. Yeah. 
and you're going to read it, and I don't, I don't want you to have that shock factor. Yeah. Were you at some point using, you just mentioned uh, a weight issue, um, were you using food to cope with anxiety, or what was I the story I think we there? all do. I oh, think, yeah, absolutely. Right? So food is a comforter. Yeah. Food I, is great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> food is so yeah. good. Yes. Yes, I can. I can see that you're yeah. a foodie. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I do enjoy a good meal. For me, unfortunately, it's like sugary stuff. I'm like any sort of like hit I can get off of that. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. it's hard to get the hit within ourselves. Yeah. Sometimes, absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's I think so obviously readily available because we do need food to live and finding that balance is difficult. Yeah. How was your experience with that? So, you know, on all sides of the spectrum around food, whether you're withholding mm-hmm. or you're eating, it's in your control. Yeah. And so food was a pacifier. Mm-hmm. Food, like, it was a way to get back at the world. It's also self-protection. And mm-hmm. what you'll find a lot I'm not going to say across the board because everyone is different and grief is like your fingerprint and the relationship to food is like your fingerprint it's mm-hmm. as individual as you are for some people it's sugar for some people it's salt yeah right? for some people it's just hiding it completely hiding what you're doing what you're not doing um, so food for me was that was that protector like especially as a as a sexual abuse survivor mm-hmm. If I got heavy, mm-hmm. no one's going to want to touch me. Ah, I see. And it becomes, if you want to get near me, you're going to have to get past my fat. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to get past that pain. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to like me because of my mind. Mm-hmm. Not because I'm pretty. Not because of my body. Not because of the way that I'm facing forward in the world in terms of my presentation. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a test. Mm-hmm. And when people lose weight, my theory is that a lot of times the reasons they put it back on is because they don't know how to navigate as the thinner person. Mm-hmm. They don't know yeah, how to navigate yeah. in the world. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people don't realize how much your appearance has to do with your own self-image. Yeah. And like It's, like you say, about control. Yeah. Were you worried when you started losing weight that you'd swing too hard the other way? I think sometimes I did. Uh-huh. Um, and yet, what became my passion, again, to go back to creativity, Yeah. right? It's the... It became the, 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 the thing that I did. Sure. Uh, pottery, you can take it. You can take clay anywhere. You mm-hmm. know, I can. I can just take a piece of clay and I can work that clay and I can make little masks and and no one knows what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, writing poetry, uh, writing short stories, writing what, just writing thoughts down. Um, now with with the being able to record so many things, being able to record one's voice and just just do a rant and then yeah. listen back. Mm-hmm. Those are all ways to let out what I let out the emotions that the food took care of. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so if I choose not to eat, I could choose to shop, which that's actually what what I started to do. Like okay, I would spend a lot of time in stores 
trying on clothes because mm. it was like, okay, I might be hungry, but I'm not going to eat. I'm going to shop. Yeah. And that becomes another kind of addiction. Mm-hmm. So how do you change that again into your creative flow? Mm-hmm. And exercise became part of my creative flow. I started to create poetry on my walks. I started to, to think about stories, short stories. I started to create a storyline for the book. Mm-hmm. on those walks so it became much more uh, mind and soul focused not externally focused mm-hmm. but more internally focused because the food is external you know the shopping is external it's a way not to be present with the self and the soul mm-hmm. the the writing the journaling and you know and with journaling everybody's like oh I don't want to journal and it's true, yeah. it's true, but even if you write down one word and you're precise about what that word mm-hmm. is and how true that word is for you in that day and make meaning of it for your soul for that day, mm-hmm. wow, then that's pretty cool. Yeah, it really, it's, it, it's almost like making sure you're hearing yourself in that moment. Um, and... Would you be interested in speaking about the correlation between addiction and trauma and what you've found? It's yeah. just an exchange, mm-hmm. and uh, it all becomes currency. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. So what's the currency of mm-hmm. the, um, the trade-off? Yeah. And what can you live with and what can't you live with? Mm. And the, the, so truly, it's like I was trading food for shopping Mm -hmm. and then what happens when you shop Mm -hmm. what happens to those credit cards Mm -hmm. and you're blind like Mm -hmm. like i became blind it's like oh i have to pay for this this month (laughs) how am i gonna do that yeah yeah and i can remember going to my dad and saying i have five thousand dollars in credit card bills what what did you need it for edie well, Dad, um, I, I don't know. I spent a lot of time in stores. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he lent me the money, but it was that the payoff was yeah. intense. Yeah. And during the payoff period, I started to put on weight. Mm. So that, you know, so for me, it was, it was that food shopping thing. And it was like, I have to break this. Yeah. I have to break this cycle. And with any addiction... It's painful to let go. And that's where maybe the pain allows us to get in touch with the creative flow. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to find ways, and I continue to strive to find ways, where I don't need the pain to be creative. Mm-hmm. Where the flow can happen, not because of a mental health crisis, but the flow can happen because we're in touch. I'm in touch. I'm tapping into um, my truth. Mm-hmm. I'm tapping in. We we use the word authenticity yeah. a lot. Yes. I'm kind of. I'm going out here. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of sick of the word. Yeah. To be honest with you. Yeah. So I don't know what the replacement word is, but maybe it's integrity. Yeah. I could see that. And maybe yeah. it's integrity to the self. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's, am I out of integrity when I go spend money and I'm asleep? Mm-hmm. And it's those, the other concept lately I've been playing around with, and I'd love to hear what you think about this. Sure. Walking with blinders on. Yeah. Not seeing 
just seeing what's in front but really not even seeing yeah and what happens when we take off the blinders Mm -hmm. yeah i think there's i think both good and bad things as well about opening your mind because you once you open your mind to the entirety of the world there's a lot of negative things there but you can also see the beauty of like a sunset so it's like you have to weigh the balances of of, of that but I would also say you do I think when you are in an anxiety or a depression mode focus so heavily on the negatives and you do put those blinders on I think that's a very apt metaphor of for that and it's you become so hyper focused on your own personal pain that so often the thing that for me has gotten me out of funks or whatever you want to call them is reaching out to other people and hearing their stories and once you do that you're like i'm not the only one going here and then you immediately can kind of open yourself up as you said earlier sharing helps so much because it also gives you control over your own narrative and your own story and the situation um, you mentioned uh, being a survivor of sexual abuse. Um, without getting into the particulars, because that is your business and you can share as much as you'd like, what was that like going through that process? And then also I would love to hear your thoughts about our current social conversation or surrounding sexual assault and sexual abuse. I pause. Mm-hmm. Because there's so many layers. Sure. And the question you just asked, not just, you know, my story, but the stories of so many people out there Mm -hmm. who have put away their voices and been in hiding. So um, I just kind of want to acknowledge and... um, honor mm-hmm. the silence that has needed to happen um, for certain survival mm-hmm. and the rules around it are always changing yeah and the rules in our society and culture are always changing and so to your second question I'll certainly address that mm-hmm. um, it's a it's such a big conversation it's so huge mm-hmm. uh, just to answer quickly about m- me mm-hmm. um, so I was nine when this happened oh wow and um, what I can tell you is that I never told anyone mm-hmm. not my family not my mother not my father not friends no one mm-hmm. I was 35 when I told my mother. Wow. So that secret was held for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. What I can also share with you is that one of the abusers came to me Mm -hmm. and apologized. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know that there was great remorse 
on their part. And I feel kind of sad that they had to live with that kind of punishment for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And that they know what they did. And you know, being nine and having had that experience what we do mm -hmm. is we start to play around with our brains and mm -hmm. think, maybe I made that up. Mm -hmm. Maybe that really didn't happen. Of course. Maybe, you know, I dreamt it. May and, and, you know, you put it into that nice box and you put it away and you say, I'm sure it didn't happen. Yeah. But when that person apologized, yeah, it was a point. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't dream this. Yeah. And it really did happen. And okay, thank you. <laughs> so that was truly the beginning of healing, was that apology. We can't take it away, but it does form us, mm -hmm. and I can address it and talk about it. And the work that I do as a trauma therapist and I'm a sex therapist, so I work a lot yeah. with sexuality, spirituality, uh, grief. It's all part of the picture. Mm -hmm. And the climate that we're in now is very tricky. Yeah. And beca because there's a, there's a force behind it. Mm -hmm. And forces are important because, again, they help us feel like we're part of community. But because the rules are constantly changing, the rules of the 60s and mm -hmm. 70s are very different than the rules of 2020. Mm -hmm. And how I'm just not sure how we manage through the changing of those rules. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't mean that what happened in the 70s and 80s and 90s and early two you know, 2001 mm -hmm. have any less validity. It's just what one did and how one did it mm -hmm. and why one did it would not necessarily be accepted now. And so we go back and we go, oh my God, that was abuse. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. And there's a, it's, a, it's, these are hard strokes and it's like, don't put those blinders on anymore. Mm -hmm. And the fear for me is that you know, there are these movements and then the blinders go on. And then there are these movements and then the blinders go back on. And how do we keep this conversation going in a healthy way? Mm -hmm. In a way that we can say, say no and mean no and that that's honored by whomever. And it, it, we've got so much going on with our churches and in our synagogues and in you know, being in, in, in hiding underneath the, the robes of holy people. Mm -hmm. And we need to be mindful of taking those blinders on so we don't allow ourselves to think that people in power have rights that they don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure I answered. No, you absolutely did. You you did a wonderful job. Um, do you do you find that people identify 
with being a survivor. I like the term, you know, survivor rather than victim of something. But do you think identifying so hard with those things prevents growth? So that, a oh, great question, because survivor, so it used to be victim, mm-hmm. and now the, 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 the term has become survivor. And do we overuse that, mm-hmm. you know? And, and some people say, no, I'm not a survivor. I don't want to be thought of as a survivor. We need a broader language, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, I, you can self-identify as someone who's had an experience that has changed their lives forever, mm-hmm. going from that ordinary life through a supreme ordeal, going into the depths of that cave and having to face demons that you never thought you'd have to face, and then coming out and realizing that you've got unexpected allies, that you've got... You, you, you've, you've come out and you've met people as a result of that really hard journey that you never would have thought you would have met. And that they are caretakers and they are witnesses and they are so many, um, so much more than what, what you would have ever expected to have. So yes, maybe there's survivorship and, I, and we use survivor but you are so much more than that survivor and and you can pigeonhole yourself or you can say, how does this experience that, yes, brought me down or maybe got me in touch with my body in ways that I had never been in touch with my body or opened up worlds or shut down worlds or got me to say, you know what? I don't need those people in my life. Mm-hmm. I actually only want to be with people who I like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what a who, concept. Yeah, what a concept. <laughs> Not because yeah. I need them in my life, yeah. but who are nice. Yeah. And nice is such a kind of, I don't know, a generic word, but kind, empathetic. Kind. Yeah. You know, interested, mm-hmm. curious. Yeah. How can we, like, exchange curiosities mm-hmm. and create our own cave of a curiosity shop? Yeah. You know? Like, I only want to be around those kinds of people who mm-hmm. can allow judgment in the room, but it's not a bad thing. It's about balance. It's like, hmm, okay, I might not agree with you, but how about this idea? How about that idea? And it's all okay, but the critics not allowed through the door. Mm-hmm. And to be able to assess the difference between the judge and the critic and, and that there are differences. And just like there are so many different layers to... Yes, I survived someone touching me in ways that they shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And I never want to be touched like that again. Mm-hmm. And I only want to allow a touch with permission. Mm-hmm. And I might need to learn about what permissive touch is even about. Yeah. And I might need to assess what is a good friend. Mm-hmm. And I might need to be able to take the time to say, how is my body, how is my mind, how is my soul, my castle? Mm. And who do I allow in my castle? When do I put, you know, when do I allow the, the, the moat to, <laughs> to, to, you know, to, to allow someone to come in? Mm-hmm. When do I pick up those doors so no one can come? Mm-hmm. And to... To enhance that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and 
Do you have any techniques, any thoughts about how to best use your judgment that way? How, or, or rather, how have you personally, over the years, you learned to go, well, this person is worth letting into my life, and this one may cause a little trouble, and this one is not allowed? Mm. Oh, yeah. so you've created three boxes. Yeah, well... <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Okay, so those three boxes are baskets, so... Mm-hmm. Who, who comes in? Yep. Who's kind of in the middle? Yeah, who can visit? Who can visit? Yeah. Right? They can visit, mm-hmm. but they can't break in. Yeah, yeah. And they can't spend the night on the couch. They and have they to go home. They have the to go the home. Yeah. Right. It's time limited. Yeah. Okay. And then who's not allowed in at all? Yeah. Yeah. How do you discern that personally? So, um, coming, this is a whole other conversation in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like this spiritual side of us, whether sure. we want to believe it or not. There's something that we can't explain. Yeah. Right? Intuitive. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but if it has, I'd love to hear about it. Like I get, it's called my chill factor. Mm. So when something is feeling right, I get this chill all over my body mm-hmm. and it's a knowing chill and it's like, ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, that's good. Yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. And I like this person, and I'm already feeling, like, relaxed. So I have tells. Mm-hmm. I think everybody has tells. I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. The good poker players yeah, have a yeah. lot of really, you know, they're <laughs> yeah. able to, to, to watch those yeah, tells, yeah, yeah. right? They're able to really map someone. Mm-hmm. And so it is that mapping skills skill that we all have. Yeah. And, you know... How much emotionality can we tolerate in another person? Mm-hmm. How, you know, what are the the ups and the downs? The, you know, are they, do they walk around angry all the time? Is mm-hmm. their anger more external or internal? Uh, a lot of comedians, they're hilarious on the outside, yeah. right? But internally, there's, 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 there's angst and tension. Mm-hmm. And, and so... To, to ask that question, like, who do, who do you let in? Mm-hmm. Like, who's invited in? Yeah. Not just invited, but you can sleep on my couch. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'll loan you $30. I'll loan you 30 Yeah. 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 Emotionally. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. 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 So it's part of that tell. Mm-hmm. It's also... So something happens to me. Um, where I, when I'm intimidated or not comfortable, I'm a talker. Sure. Okay? Yeah. I cannot, I, there's no words. Mm-hmm. The, I cannot find my words. I, 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 I call it the guillotine effect. I feel <laughs> as if my head is no longer attached to my body. Sure. And I'm like, I, I, where am I? Mm-hmm. And that's usually a sign that that person is probably not even going to be able to visit. Mm-hmm. That they're just a kind of like, no, mm-hmm. no. Mm-mm. The person who's able to visit... You know, maybe there's something about them that's inspiring and that I feel I can learn from, even though I might not be able to tolerate long spurts of them. Mm. There's a good chance that they rem- that there's some reminder that of of a parent or a sibling mm-hmm. or a teacher who was great but hard. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do you feel as though you've really learned? how to see people's tells as a therapist and like you really like garnered your intuition that way yes yes 
And my clients are my greatest teachers. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and also, as someone who's naturally a talker, do you have a hard time? Was it difficult transitioning from being a talker to being more of an active listener in that role? Yes and no. Mm. I think there are a lot of therapists who are silent. Mm-hmm. You know, in the mm-hmm. room. In the room. I'm, I'm pretty engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, it would not be unusual for me to bring in clay mm-hmm. or to sit on the floor mm-hmm. uh, or to play because so much of our language, we're used to speaking and telling our story, and we tell our stories so much that we're immune. Yeah. We're not even feeling them. Yeah. So I want the story to come out in a different way. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's through you telling me a story, or maybe it's through... Uh, I love reading fairy tales. Do you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love reading books like Grover. There's a monster at the end of the book. Yeah. And so one of the things I'll often do, and yeah. even... A session or when I'm doing like a group or mm-hmm. even when I'm keynoting is I'll read that book mm-hmm. there's a monster at the end of the book and the end of the book is oh it's just me mm-hmm. Grover mm-hmm. and that's really what the work is about it's yeah. like how are we kind of getting in our own way and our own monsters and so yet mm-hmm. do I talk I do and yet it's very paced mm. and with intention mm-hmm. and I don't want to hear the story first you know the first time you walk in mm-hmm. I actually want to know what's going on in your body I want to know what you're yearning for mm-hmm. I want to know where you think your grief is instead of hearing your story because you've told that story mm-hmm. if you haven't told it to someone you've told it to yourself over and over and over mm-hmm. again let's do it differently mm-hmm. yeah that absolutely makes sense um, and yeah, that book is great. <laughs> it was one of my favorites at the, as a child. And yeah. I still, I work in childcare, and so I think about it all the time. I'm like, Ooh, we should get that one. Um, what's the most difficult part of being a therapist, do you think? Uh, again, I pause. Mm-hmm. People come in, Mm -hmm. and by the time they reach me, it feels like they've seen a couple of therapists already, Uh or they've gone to a couple of groups, Mm -hmm. or they've been given way too much medication, and they're kind of at their wit's end. Mm. And it's... Holding the history of their pain mm. is is difficult because when they walk out of the office, it's not like I they walk out and I don't still have it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that I carry it so that it hurts me, mm-hmm. but I carry it so that I can actually try to imagine in my mind what their what their new picture is going to be mm-hmm. what their new story is going mm-hmm. to be and so it is it is in the creation in my own mind of what that new story is going to be even though that never really gets shared but it's that's that's the part is 
what is the the iteration the new iteration of their story going to be and then it, and then and then i get to test it mm-hmm. in different ways mm-hmm. and what what will be tolerated and what won't be tolerated uh, I, I guess the other piece to that is the inhumanity that's out there in the world and how much this world that is so fast paced now um, that we are not taking time for ourselves and our souls mm-hmm. and where is there a chance for me my soul and I mm-hmm. yeah what would you say your the greatest joy is being able to be in the room with someone yeah. and me my soul and I yeah yeah there you go that's wonderful when you started school for therapy um, has it proven different than your expectations were when you first started out? Like, I love school. Yeah. I am. If I could actually just be a student <laughs> for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. I would really be happy. I see that maybe you agree. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Um, I think it certainly makes things easier where you're like, okay, I have this exact focus. This is what I have to concern myself with. I don't have to think about, you know, Specifically, when you're a young student, you don't have to think about rent. You don't have to. It does bring a beautiful focus to a life, and I think that's why a lot of millennials end up going to grad school because they go, "Okay, I was out of school, and this was a lot more like frightening and stranger than I thought it was going to be, and now I can find that focus again." But I feel like a lot of the times they're just prolonging the inevitable. Yeah. But so you would stay in school forever if you could I, I would I would stay in school forever if I could uh, mm. and and yet there in a way mm-hmm. I have because I don't know that I had an expectation of what it was going to look like what I knew is that it wasn't going to look like anything that was kind of normal therapy I knew that it was going to be I was going to be an outlier Mm -hmm. in my work I'm an outlier in life I was going to be you know I am who I am and that that what I brought to the table was going to to not just be kind of one way of doing it Mm -hmm. and so I I I I incorporated role play and psychodrama and Mm -hmm clay and drawing and sitting on the floor and um, using the archetypes and using the goddesses and gods as a means of talking through grief and loss and trauma and using what are called projective techniques whether it's puppetry or dolls Mm -hmm. so having a creative access it's not that that's what happens all the time Mm -hmm. but it happened enough being doing something called EMDR and which is you know a way of working through um, trauma and the way that we hold it in our brains Mm. and and so I have you know always being a student always upping the ante always taking classes always learning from people who I think are the best in whatever it is that they're doing from you know David Schnarch, who works in what he calls you know brain talk, and it's brain. It's really the idea of how our brains 
change how we can change our brains and mm-hmm. and that they're not you know they're not on a status quo they actually move and the brain is one of our greatest allies and if there's any message it's like like understand that your brain can be your your an unexpected ally in the way that you move through anxiety or depression or grief or loss or or, or sexual abuse mm-hmm. uh, you know, changing the cognitions changing the thought patterns so that's what EMDR does that's what a lot of this conversation that's out there in, in the world of psychology but then becoming more in tune with that and aligning more with that is never being like like in a status quo position mm-hmm. that that it's it's saying okay well this is what I trained in but where can I build where can I build myself mm-hmm. where can I learn more and believe it or not even taking um, taking theater courses or uh, or improv can actually help us work through stuff mm-hmm. that gets in our way yeah so uh, it's always thinking outside of the box thinking mm-hmm. outside of the box mm-hmm. and what would you say your biggest piece of advice for someone who's going through similar things to you and your story would be you've got a lot of stories in you Mm -hmm. and this is just one understand that you can rewrite this story one line at a time and share your story don't walk with shame Realize that your story may be an unexpected ally. And your story and stories are like your fingerprint, as individual as you are, and no one shares your story. And that's what makes you special. That's what makes you you. And if you can utilize that sense of individuality and integrity to move in the world and not do it alone, Mm-hmm. and not be afraid of the other stories that will be part of your ordinary life and your supreme ordeals because you will have many and moving back into an ordinary life that is nothing that you could have ever imagined and I am a, a lover of The Wizard of Oz. I don't know if your listeners mm-hmm. know The Wizard of Oz, but I hope that they do. Mm-hmm. And if they do, that you are the wearer and the bearer of the red shoes. And you might not realize that you have that power, but you are walking with it even when you don't know it. And when you see that you've got them, own them. That's absolutely wonderful. This has been a joy to talk to you, and I want to thank you for coming all the way out here to do it. It was a pleasure, and I, I hope that we're able to continue this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you.